0: Section 30 of Italian Hours by Henry James. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Florentine Notes, Part 2. 3. One grows to feel the collection of pictures at the Pitti Palace splendid rather than interesting, After walking through it once or twice, you catch the key in which it is pitched. You know what you are likely not to find on closer examination. None of the works of the uncompromising period. Nothing from the half-groping geniuses of the early time, those whose colouring was sometimes harsh, and their outline sometimes angular. Vague to me the principle on which the pictures were originally gathered and of the aesthetic creed of the princes who chiefly selected them. A princely creed, I should roughly call it. The creed of people who believed in things presenting a fine face to society, who esteemed showy results rather than curious processes and would hardly have cared more to admit into their collection a work by one of the laborious precursors of the full efflorescence than to see a bucket and broom left standing in a state saloon. The gallery contains, in literal fact, some eight or ten paintings of the early Tuscan school, notably two admirable specimens of Filippo Lippi and one of the frequent circular pictures of the great Botticelli, a Madonna chilled with tragic prescience, laying a pale cheek against that of a blighted infant. Such a melancholy mother as this of Botticelli would have strangled her baby in its cradle to rescue it from the future. But a Botticelli, there is much to say. One of the Filippo Lippis is perhaps his masterpiece, a Madonna in a small rose garden, such a flowery close as Mr William Morris loves to haunt, leaning over an infant who kicks his little human heels on the grass while half a dozen curly-painted angels gather about him, looking back over their shoulders with the candour of children in tableau vivant, and one of them drops an armful of gathered roses one by one upon the baby. The delightful earthly innocence of these winged youngsters is quite inexpressible. Their heads are twisted about toward the spectator, as if they were playing leap leapfrog and were expecting a companion to come and take a jump. Never did young art, never did subjective freshness, attempt with greater success to represent those phases. But these three fine works are hung over the tops of doors in a dark back room. The bucket and broom are thrust behind a curtain. It seems to me nevertheless that a fine Filippo lippi is good enough company for a Alori or a gigoli and that the too-deeply sentient Virgin of Botticelli might happily balance the flower-like irresponsibility of Raphael's Madonna of the Chair. Taking the Pitti collection, however, simply for what it pretends to be, it gives us the very flower of the sumptuous, the courtly, the grand ducal. It is cheaply official art, as one may say, but it presents the fine side of the type, the brilliancy, the facility, the amplitude, the sovereignty of good taste. I agree on the whole with the nameless companion, and with what he lately remarked about his own humour on these matters, that, having been on his first acquaintance with pictures, nothing if not critical, and held the lesson incomplete and the opportunity slighted, If he left a gallery without a headache, he had come as he grew older to regard them more as the grandest of all pleasantries, less as the most strenuous of all lessons, and to remind himself that, after all, it is the privilege of art to make us friendly to the human mind, and not to make us suspicious of it. We do, in fact, as we grow older, unstring the critical bow a little, and strike a truce with invidious comparisons. We work off the juvenile impulse to heated partisanship, and discover that one spontaneous producer isn't different enough from another to keep the all-knowing fates from smiling over our loves and our aversions. We perceive a certain human solidarity in all cultivated effort, and are conscious of a growing accommodation of judgment, an easier disposition, the fruit of experience, to take the joke for what it is worth as it passes. We have, in short, less of a quarrel with the masters we don't delight in, and less of an impulse to pin all our faith on those in whom, in our more zealous days, we fancied that we had made our peculiar meanings. The meanings no longer seem quite so peculiar. Since then, we have arrived at a few in the depths of our own genius that are not sensibly less striking. And yet it must be added that all this depends vastly on one's mood, as a traveller's impressions do generally, to a degree which those who give them to the world would do well more explicitly to declare We have our hours of expansion and those of contraction. And yet while we follow the traveller's trade, we go about gazing and judging with unadjusted confidence. We can't suspend judgment. We must take our notes. And the notes are florid or crabbed, as the case may be. A short time ago, I spent a week in an ancient city on a hilltop in the humour, for which I was not to blame, which produces crabbed notes. I knew it at the time, but couldn't help it. I went through all the motions of liberal appreciation. I uncapped in all the churches and on the massive ramparts, stared all the views fairly out of countenance. But my imagination, which I suppose at bottom had very good reasons of its own and knew perfectly what it was about, Refuse to project into the dark old town and upon the yellow hills that sympathetic glow which forms half the substance of our genial impressions. So it is that in museums and palaces we are alternate radicals and conservatives. On some days we ask but to be somewhat sensibly affected, on others, Ruskin haunted to be spiritually steadied. After a long absence from the Pitty Palace, I went back there the other morning and transferred myself from chair to chair in the great golden-roofed saloons. The chairs are all gilded and covered with faded silk in the humour to be diverted at any price. I needn't mention the things that diverted me. I yawn now and I think of some of them, but an artist, for instance, to whom my kindlier judgment has made permanent concessions, is that charming Andrea del Sarro. When I first knew him in my cold youth, I used to say without mincing that I didn't like him. Cet âge est sans pitié. The fine, sympathetic, melancholy, pleasing painter. He has a dozen faults. And if you insist pedantically on your rights, the conclusive word you use about him will be the word weak. But if you are a generous soul, you will utter it low. Low is the mild, grave tone of his own sought harmonies. He is monotonous, narrow, incomplete. He has but a dozen different figures, and but two or three ways of distributing them. He seems able to utter but half his thought, and his canvases lack apparently some final return on the whole matter, some process which his impulse failed him before he could bestow. And yet in spite of these limitations, his genius is both itself of the great pattern and lighted by the air of a great period. Three gifts he had largely, an instinctive, unaffected, unerring grace a large and rich, and yet a sort of withdrawn and indifferent, sobriety. And best of all, as well as rarest of all, an indescribable property of relatedness as to the moral world. Whether he was aware of the connection or not, or in what measure, I cannot say, but he gives, so to speak, the taste of it. Before his handsome, vague, browed Madonnas, the mild, robust young saints who kneel in his foregrounds and look round at you with a conscious anxiety, which seems to say that, though in the picture they are not of it, but of your own sentient life of commingled love and weariness, the stately apostles with comely heads and harmonious draperies who gaze up at the high-seated virgin like early astronomers at a newly seen star there comes to you the brush of the dark wing of an inward life. A shadow falls for the moment, and in it you feel a chill of moral suffering. Did the Lippis suffer, father and son? Did Raphael suffer? Did Titian? Did Rubens suffer? Perish the thought. It wouldn't be fair to us that they should have had everything. And I note in our poor second-rate Andrea an element of interest lacking to a number of stronger talents. Interspersed with him at the pitti hang the stronger and the weaker in splendid abundance. Raphael is there, strong in portraiture, easy, various, bountiful genius that he was. And strong here isn't the word, but happy beyond the common dream in his beautiful Madonna of the Chair. The general instinct of posterity seems to have been to treat this lovely picture as a semi-sacred, an almost miraculous manifestation. People stand in a worshipful silence before it as they would before a taper-studded shrine. If we suspend in imagination on the right of it, the solid, realistic, unidealized portrait of Leo X, which hangs in another room, and transport to the left the fresco of the School of Athens from the Vatican, and then reflect that these were three separate fancies of a single, useful, amiable genius. We recognise that such a producing consciousness must have been a treat. My companion already quoted has a phrase that he doesn't care for Raphael, but confesses when pressed that he was a most remarkable young man. Titian has a dozen portraits of unequal interest. I never particularly noticed till lately, it is very ill-hung, that portentous image of the Emperor Charles V. He was a burlier, more imposing personage than his usual legend figures, and in his great puffed sleeves and gold chains and full-skirted overdress, he seems to tell of a tread that might sometimes have been inconveniently resonant. But the purpose to have his way and work his will is there, the great stomach for divine right, the old monarchical temperament. The great Titian in portraiture, however, remains that formidable young man in black, with the small, compact head, the delicate nose, and the irascible blue eye. Who was he? What was he? Retratto Virile, is all the catalogue is able to call the picture. Virile, rather you vulgarly exclaim. You may weave what romance you please about it, but a romance your dream must be. Handsome, clever, defiant, passionate, dangerous. It was not his own fault if he hadn't had adventures and despair. He was a gentleman and a warrior, and his adventures balanced between camp and court. I imagine him the young orphan of a noble house, about to come into mortgaged estates. One wouldn't have cared to be his guardian, bound to paternal admonitions once a month over his precocious transactions with the Jews or his scandalous abduction from her convent of such and such a noble maiden. The Pitti Gallery contains none of Titian's golden-toned groups, but it boasts a lovely composition by Paul Veronese, the dealer in silver hues, A Baptism of Christ. W. named it to me the other day as the picture he most enjoyed, and surely painting seems here to have proposed to itself to discredit and annihilate, and even on the occasion of such a subject, everything but the loveliness of life. The picture bedims and enfeebles its neighbours. We ask ourselves whether painting as such can go further. It is simply that here at last the art stands complete. The early Tuscans, as well as Leonardo, as Raphael, as Michael, saw the great spectacle that surrounded them in beautiful sharp-edged elements and parts. The great Venetians felt its indissoluble unity, and recognised that form and colour and earth and air were equal members of every possible subject, and beneath their magical touch the hard outlines melted together, and the blank intervals bloomed with meaning. In this beautiful Paul Veronese of the Pitti, everything is part of the charm the atmosphere as well as the figures, the look of radiant morning in the white street sky as well as the living human limbs, the cloth of Venetian purple about the loins of the Christ as well as the noble humility of his attitude. The relation to nature of the other Italian schools differs from that of the Venetian as courtship, even ardent courtship, Differs from marriage. 4. I went the other day to the secularized convent of San Marco, paid my franc at the profane little wicket which creaks away at the door, no less than six custodians apparently are needed to turn it, as if it may have a recusant conscience, passed along the bright, still cloister, and paid my respects to Fra Angelico's crucifixion in that dusky chamber in the basement. I looked long, one can hardly do otherwise. The fresco deals with the pathetic on the grand scale, and after taking in its beauty, you feel as little at liberty to go away abruptly as you would to leave church during the sermon. You may be as little of a formal Christian as Fra Angelico was much of one. You yet feel admonished by spiritual decency to let so yearning a view of the Christian story work its utmost will on you. The three crosses rise high against a strange, completely crimson sky, which deepens mysteriously the tragic expression of the scene. Though I remain perforce vague as to whether this lurid background be a fine intended piece of symbolism, or an effective accident of time. In the first case, the extravagance quite triumphs. Between the crosses, under no great rigour of composition, are scattered the most exemplary saints, kneeling, praying, weeping, pitying, worshipping. The swoon of the Madonna is depicted at the left, and this gives the holy presences in respect to the case the strangest historical or actual air. Everything is so real that you feel a vague impatience and almost ask yourself how it was that amid the army of his concentrated servants a lord was permitted to suffer. On reflection, you see that the painter's design, so far as coherent, has been simply to offer an immense representation of pity and all with such concentrated truth that his colours here seem dissolved in tears that drop and drop, however softly, through all time. Of this single yearning consciousness, the figures are admirably expressive. No later painter learned to render with deeper force than Fra Angelico the one state of the spirit he could conceive, a passionate pious tenderness. Immured in his quiet convent, he apparently never received an intelligible impression of evil, and his conception of human life was the perpetual sense of sacredly loving and being loved. But how immured in his quiet convent, away from the streets and the studios, did he become that genuine finished, perfectly professional painter. No one is less of a mere Mawkish amateur. His range was broad, from this really heroic fresco to the little trumpeting seraphs in their opaline robes, enamelled, as it were, on the gold margins of his pictures. I sat out the sermon and departed, I hope, with the gentle preacher's blessing. I went into the smaller refectory nearby to refresh my memory of the beautiful Last Supper of Domenico Ghirlandaio. It would be putting things coarsely to say that I adjourned thus from a sermon to a comedy, though Ghirlandaio's theme, as contrasted with the Blessed Angelico's, was the dramatic, spectacular side of human life. How keenly he observed it, and how richly he rented it. The world about him of colour and costume, of handsome heads and pictorial groupings. In his admirable school, there is no painter one enjoys pace Ruskin more sociably and irresponsibly. Lippo Lippi is simpler, quainter, more frankly expressive, but we retain before him a remnant of the sympathetic discomfort provoked by the masters whose conceptions were still a trifle too large for their means. The pictorial vision in their minds seems to stretch and strain their undeveloped skill almost to a sense of pain. In Girandaio the skill and the imagination are equal, and it gives us a delightful impression of enjoying his own resources. Of all the painters of his time, he affects us least as positively not of ours. He enjoyed a crimson mantle spreading and tumbling in curious folds, and embroidered with needlework of gold, just as he enjoyed a handsome, well-rounded head with vigorous dusky locks profiled in courteous adoration. He enjoyed, in short, the various reality of things, and had the good fortune to live in an age when reality flowered into a thousand amusing graces, to speak only of those. He was not especially addicted to giving spiritual hints, and yet how hard and meagre they seemed, the professed and finished realists of our own day, with the spiritual bonhomie or candour that makes half Gilandayo's richness left out. The Last Supper at San Marco is an excellent example of the natural reverence of an artist of that time with whom reverence was not, as one may say, a specialty. The main idea with him has been the variety, the material bravery and positively social charm of the scene, which finds expression with irrepressible generosity in the accessories of the background. Instinctively, he imagines an opulent garden, imagines it with a good faith which quite tides him over the reflection that Christ and his disciples were poor men and unused to sit at meat in palaces, Great full-fruited orange trees peep over the wall before which the table is spread. Strange birds fly through the air while a peacock perches on the edge of the partition and looks down on the sacred repast. It is striking that without any at all intense religious purpose, the figures in their varied naturalness have a dignity and sweetness of attitude that admits of numberless reverential constructions. I should call all this the happy tact of a robust faith. On the staircase leading up to the little painted cells of the Beato Angelico, however, I suddenly faltered and paused. Somehow I had grown averse with the intenser zeal of the monk of Piesere. I wanted no more of him that day. I wanted no more macerated fries and spear gashed sides. Girandio's elegant way of telling his story had put me in the humour for something more largely intelligent, more profanely pleasing. I departed, walked across the square, and found it in the academy, standing in a particular spot and looking up at a particular high-hung picture. It is difficult to speak adequately, perhaps even intelligibly, of Sandro Botticelli. An accomplished critic, Mr. Pater, in his Studies on the History of the Renaissance, has lately paid him the tribute of an exquisite, a supreme curiosity. He was a rarity and distinction incarnate, and of all the multitudinous masters of his group, incomparably the most interesting, the one who detains and perplexes and fascinates us most. Exquisitely fine his imagination, Infinitely audacious and adventurous, his fancy. Alone among the painters of his time, he strikes us as having invention. The glow and thrill of expanding observation. This was the feeling that sent his comrades to their easels. But Botticelli's moved him to reactions and emotions of which they knew nothing, caused his faculty to sport and wander, and explore on its own account. These impulses have fruits often so ingenious and so lovely that it will be easy to talk nonsense about them. I hope it's not nonsense, however, to say that the picture to which I just alluded, the coronation of the Virgin, with a group of life-sized saints below and a garland of miniature angels above, is one of the supremely beautiful productions of the human mind. It is hung so high that you need a good glass to see it, to say nothing of the unprecedented delicacy of the work. The lower half is of moderate interest, but the dance of the hand-clasped angels round the heavenly couple above has a beauty newly exhaled from the deepest sources of INSPIRATION. Their perfect little hands are locked with ineffable elegance. Their blowing robes are tossed into folds of which each line is a study. Their charming feet have the relief of the most delicate sculpture. But, as I have already noted, of Botticelli there is much too much to say, besides which Mr. Pater has said all, only add thus, to his inimitable grace of design, that the exquisite pictorial force driving him goes amaying not on wanton errands of its own, but on those of some mystic superstition which trembles for ever in his heart. End of Section 30